This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions and conclusions. Please talk to your healthcare team regarding your specific situation. Welcome to the Speak I Know podcast. This is me, Gutenfelder. On this episode, we have a special guest and a friend of mine, Becky Arube. During this time of uncertainty, we find it even more important to continue sharing survivor stories and stay connected. When you hear Becky's story, I think you'll find it to be inspiring and illustrate such a fighting spirit. So thank you so much for being here, Becky. Thank you for inviting me. Becky, if we could start off, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and share how your story started. Sure. Like me said, my name is Becky Arube and I live in Fort Worth. When I was originally diagnosed, I was 45 years old. I have five kids. We have his, ours, and mine. And I have seven grandkids. I'm the youngest of six kids raised by a very strong, independent, single mother. I've been married for 35 years. Currently, I am in a friendly, permanent separation marriage, and it's working great for both of us. I was originally diagnosed in 2007, stage 1C, with clear cell and serious carcinoma. Once I found out, I I had the traditional hysterectomy that include debulking, and I had nine grueling rounds of IP, IV chemo, of traditional cisplatin and taxol, and I stayed in remission basically for almost three years. During that time, I had the IP chemo, which is an interperitoneal chemo where I have a port that's in my abdominal cavity, and then they pump about two to three liters of chemo directly into my abdominal cavity. So after your chemo treatment, you walk around like you're about nine months pregnant for a couple of days until it dissipates through your body, but it puts the chemotherapy directly on any tumors that you have. So I went three years in remission, and then at that third year, my CA-125 was elevated. And so my doctor told me that I was in a reoccurrence, and I was surprised because they say with stage one, typically your cancer does not reoccur, but it just shows you that there are no guarantees with this. At the time, my doctor decided that he would do a biopsy because, you know, my CA-125 was elevated. So went and had the biopsy and it came back a low-grade cancer, which was weird because my original cancer in 2007 was a high-grade. So I thought that was strange. When they told me for sure that my biopsy was positive, I happened to be in my support group meeting that we had at Baylor in Fort Worth. The leader of the group, she's a professor at TCU, the nursing program, and she, along with the people in the group, said, you should go and get a second opinion. I was devastated that my cancer had returned. So I made an appointment at UT Southwestern. And when I went, I had all my pathology reports, including the new pathology from the biopsy I just had. And I went to UT Southwestern and right away, the doctor said he thought it was strange that my original pathology in 2007 and then my other, my new pathology in 2010 showed two different cancers, one low grade, one high grade. So what he did is he sent all of my pathology reports to Johns Hopkins and let them review everything. Several months later, it came back and it showed that the cancer that reoccurred was clear cell and that in 2007, I did have clear cell, but it was not mentioned on the pathology report. Also, my report from Johns Hopkins said that I had reoccurrent ovarian cancer from three sites of contamination that was directly associated back with my original gynecologist who removed my ovary and discovered that I had ovarian cancer in the beginning. So after that first reoccurrence,
recurrence. I had a tumor debulking and I had three small isolated tumors, which my doctor took out. And then I had six rounds of carbotaxol, just traditional IV. Mm-hmm. And after all that was over, I you know went back for my checkup and my monthly CA-125s. And almost a year to the date, I had another elevated. And so my doctor said, you know, it looks like that your cancer has returned. And I was, once again, you know, you're completely devastated when it happens. Mm-hmm. I did have a PET scan and I had a CT scan. And so what they found was one small isolated tumor on the back of my abdominal erectus muscle. And during this time from when I was originally diagnosed until 2010, I had become extremely savvy. I had become an advocate for myself. I had met hundreds of other women and I had began to listen to their stories and their journeys and what their doctors are telling them. And I had joined the NOCC, which is the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. I joined OCNA, which is ovarian uh, what does ACNA stand for? I think it's Ovarian Cancer National Alliance. Yeah. Join them. Also, I went to, I discovered a camp in Montana called Can't Make a Dream. So, during all, through all these organizations, conferences, I went to everything. I began to meet hundreds and hundreds of women with ovarian cancer. Each person was different. Each cancer was different. Each doctor's advice was different. I started learning all this stuff. And I also had heard about this new thing that was going on. It's called assay testing. And basically, the non scientific version is they take a piece of your biopsy tumor or tumor removal and it goes to this laboratory and they grow it in little petri dishes and they test different chemotherapies against it Mm -hmm. and I had asked my doctor could I have that and at first he wasn't that crazy about it but I was insistent it's my money it's my body I want to fight this as, as much as I can and there was also another company that would do an assay test based on your pathology slides so I decided I was going to do both them. So my doctor at UT Southwestern, I had surgery again, and then he took my tumor, gave it to the laboratory, and so they began the testing. And it took them about three months. And during that three months waiting period, I was really paranoid because nothing was happening, you know, other than probably cancer was growing in my body. Mm -hmm. But I had decided I wanted to have this SA test done. And there's no guarantees, but I wanted to have it done. So I got both test results from both companies, and both of them hinted at the same type of chemo that they would suggest might be beneficial to me. My doctor and I decided that's what we were going to go with. Also, during that assay test, I found out that I was platinum resistant, which means that no platinum-based drugs, carboplatin, cisplatin, any of those are going to be effective against my tumor. And because my tumor was clear cell, which traditionally does not respond well to chemotherapy, so we went with a drug called Olympta. And it's typically given for clear cell tumors like lung cancer or kidneys or different things. So I had that and I had, I believe, six six or seven rounds of the Olympta. And of course, I had to have the surgery also and he removed the tumor. And one thing that's fortunate on both of my recurrences is my doctor was able to remove the isolated tumor and get clear margin. So I didn't have widespread disease. I had, you know, the individual tumor. So I've been extremely fortunate and very blessed to have that situation with my recurrences. The word recurrence is scary. And it is scary even when I say it for myself, mm-hmm. but it's part of what it is. And a lot of times when you're talking to people, other women that have cancer, or you, I mean, that have ovarian cancer, people get scared because it's scary, period. But it, there's hope in every single thing, every step along the way. There's hope and not every story is the same. It's always different. What happened for somebody, one's per, one person's treatment, you know, not going to be the same for you. Mm-hmm. You're exactly so, right about that because I have yet to come across across 
it's any two individuals, even with the same type of cancer or similar staging where their story is the same. Every Everyone's story is unique. It is, and that's what's so important to for women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer to try to, you know, to ask their doctor, hey, you know, I want to meet other women with ovarian cancer. It is scary. One of my doctors told me in the beginning when I men- mentioned I wanted to join the support group, and he said, now that can be scary. Those women can scare you. And I didn't really understand what he meant until the first meeting that I went to. And it was scary, but I just could not, when I left, I was scared, but I also could not imagine not ever seeing these women again because they were so nurturing to me. They were so open, their friendship with their knowledge. And one thing that is important if you have ovarian cancer is knowledge. Knowledge, information, that is power that's going to make you go far in your journey. If you have information and you, you know, you help yourself learn all these things and and become your own advocate because no one's going to fight for you like yourself. You're absolutely correct on that. And I'm so thankful that you did get the second opinion, especially when the cancer came back. It also highlights how important it is to have your routine checkups. That's really critical as well as seeing a gynecologic oncologist and have them do the surgery. Because like you had mentioned that it came back in the three isolated tumors where your original incision was from that first surgery. Right. When my gynecologist, when I went into surgery with her, it was because I had a cyst on my ovary. And so she was going to go in and see if she could remove the cyst. And then because I was having heavy menstrual cycles, she was going to do a DNC to to try to make my cycles not so strong. And I remember telling her, oh, just do a hysterectomy. And I'm so thankful that she did not do it because I was 45 and she thought, you know, you're too young. You don't want to not have hormones. So she was able to go ahead and just remove that ovary, which led to the three sites of contamination that she did. But I'm so thankful that she did not perform a hysterectomy because it could have turned out much worse for me because she was not a gynecological oncologist. It is extremely important to let one of those doctors perform your surgery. Yes, yeah, just so specialized. Um, Becky, would you be able to share with us everything that you've been through? Did cancer impact your family before your diagnosis? And how has it impacted your family since your diagnosis? Before I was diagnosed, really, I didn't know anyone in my family that had cancer. My biological father, who was not part of my life at all, at the end of his life, you know, I went to see him and he did die of cancer. But, you know, I didn't have any emotional feelings toward him. So it really, you know, didn't impact me. And plus, I was young. I didn't really even think about it. But once I was diagnosed with cancer, I was going to do the genetic testing. I met with my aunts and my cousins. I am the youngest of all of our cousins. What I found out was my aunt and my grandmother on my biological father's side both had died of ovarian cancer. And so I was so shocked that no one in my family, nobody talked about it, nobody mentioned it. And part of the thing is because way back then, people didn't talk about such things. They just said, oh, she died of a woman's disease. Mm -hmm. And so would it have impacted me? I don't know. But, you know, if anything had been different for me, if I had known that I had ovarian cancer in my family, one thing for sure, I felt like before I had surgery with with my gynecologist when she removed my ovary, had I known about the CA125 blood test, trust me, I would have had that test before I had surgery. And if my CA125 was elevated, which I'm sure it was, she would not have done my surgery. I feel like she would have referred me right then to a gynecological oncologist. And what's sad is my own gynecologist did not know about the CA125. It was not on, I'm sure she knew about it, but it was not high on her list because she traditionally delivers babies. So I don't put blame
blame on anyone, but had I known, had I been more aware of things, I definitely think it would, would have impacted my life and probably not had, had a reoccurrence, mm-hmm. possibly. I think it goes back to what you mentioned earlier is having the knowledge, knowledge from talking to other survivors, learning from others' stories, but also knowledge within our own families, within our own family history to be able to share that information because it's so important. It is important. And I come from one of five girls and I have nieces and several of them do not have kids and are never going to have kids. So they're actually at a higher risk. You know, I've told them all about genetic testing and they know, you know, obviously they were with me during my journey and everything. You know, once I found out that I had ovarian cancer and I stepped out of my comfort zone and when I see people spreading the word, doing health fairs, doing all the things, I talk, talk and talk some more and I don't ever shut up about it. I'm just constantly spreading the word and reminding people and reminding my family. And if my nieces talk about they have something, it's like you need to go see your doctor. Now's a good time to have a baseline CA-125. I'm always pushing that test. What else do you think, Becky, is important for those who are newly diagnosed or going through treatment to know? I think one of the main things is I would hope that the women who are recently diagnosed, it's such a scary time and they don't know what questions to ask their doctor. And that's why I think it's so important for them to try to reach out, to try to find us, the ones who we have been diagnosed and we have gone through surgery, we have gone through, you know, having a port put in or having our port removed or just the fear that's associated with ovarian cancer and, you know, just the uncertainty of everything. We don't know what this is. We don't know what that is. And, you know, I feel like that if they could reach out and find us, then we could help them along their journey to lessen the burdens and to answer questions and to lessen the fears that they have. One of the most scariest thing was waiting for them to call my name the first time that I was going to have chemotherapy. I was I was the person in the waiting room almost hyperventilating because I was so scared. I was and it was being scared of the unknown. I didn't know what, you know, how how the needle was going to go in my port or how, you know, the chemotherapy was going to affect. I mean, there were so many scary things and I felt like if I'd had somebody there with me that knew, mm-hmm. my husband was there but he didn't know what any of that was. You know, it's and the nurses, you know, they're fantastic, but they haven't had it. So, you know, if the newly diagnosed, if they could reach out and find us, or maybe the doctors, you know, could refer them with all the HIPAA laws and everything, it's hard for us to connect with the newly diagnosed. But I know through the support group that I've been involved in and the other, the organ, the ovarian cancer organizations camp in Montana, it has dramatically changed my life. What I want is to help other women, to help them as they're going through this process, because I feel like all of us, everyone in our group and our local and larger complex of women, we can help these newly diagnosed women with Mm -hmm. any type of gynecological cancers. Mm -hmm. And the information that we give them is going to help them. It's going to make them more powerful to have the information about their bodies, the chemo, the surgeries, everything that goes with it. We're here. We just need them to reach out to us. Mm -hmm. I did want to emphasize as well, like one of the things you mentioned, just not knowing, it can be really scary because not knowing what to expect or anticipate because it's your first time having chemo or going through treatment. And it's human nature, I think, to just jump to worst case scenario. But just having that information, the knowledge and the information, it's very helpful. It it is. And even when you've had four treatments and then on the fifth treatment, all of a sudden, maybe you're having a reaction to something. I know 
that you've had it, I've had it, but knowing ahead of time, hey, I remember, you know, the nurse says, oh, you're having a reaction, and then you can remember your girlfriend so-and-so had a reaction to it. I mean, even though you've had four treatments or five or 60, Mm -hmm. there's always that one chance that something's going to be different. And if you know somebody that's already had it or you know the story somebody said about their friend, you already have a little bit of knowledge about, oh, you know, so you're not getting so scared or anxious about it because you already, you remember someone else saying they had that. Right. right. So it's, you know, it's the connections that we make with each other that helps pave that road ahead of us. And even though maybe somebody's not next to you, you can pick up the phone, you can chat through Facebook, through wherever, you know, you stay connected. Mm -hmm. And that's, I just think is so important. And I'm glad that one day that in my doctor, the door shut. And when the door shut, I saw the flyer on the door about the full meet and eat. And so that's what started everything for me. That's Mm -hmm. how I found all of y'all. Same exact thing for me. It was through, so a mutual friend, Diane, um, she had her information posted on a flyer on, on the back of my gynecologic oncologist door. And I was just very nervous in the exam room, just kind of looking around and I saw that flyer. (laughs) I know. Thank God for Diane. Yes. She's a lifesaver. <laughs> she is. She's like the mother duck and all her little ducklings behind her. And we're, you know, trying to recruit other women all the time and help them the way that she's helped us. She was very instrumental and continues to be in all of our lives for sure. Most definitely. So next, Becky, if you could tell us, you've, you've kind of alluded to this throughout the conversation, but you are really an expert patient advocate. How did you get to where you are today? I think the first thing is just trial and error and learning the hard way. I remember after maybe the first treatment going to my doctor and I had a steno pad and I had like 23 questions about what can I do this? Can I do that? What's this? What that? And I remember my husband saying, don't ask those questions. That's a dumb question. Don't do this. Don't do that. I'm like, I'm asking them. And most of them were just like yes or no questions. I remember my doctor just kind of leaning up against the counter and said, ask away. And that was such a great moment because he recognized that I was an anxious person about all of this. And by the time we finished with all those 23 questions, I'm like, wow, I've got 23 new answers to all my fears and concerns and everything. And so that's, you know, that's how it is, is I stepped out of my comfort zone and, you know, just started asking questions because I had to decide what, I don't want someone just, you know, my husband or my neighbor's aunt's sister saying, oh, I think you should do this or whatever. You know, I needed to make myself feel better. And so it's, I stepped out of my comfort zone like you said, you were nervous. It's it's nervous meeting other women, you know, that might have cancer or, you know, hearing their stories and and it it can, and it is scary at times, but joining these other organizations really just opened my mind up and my life to all the knowledge and all the information that is out there. And each of these women had different stories. I call them, she says, she says, because she said this and she said that her doctor told her this. So she, I mean, it's not, you're not going to find these stories in a medical book or the medical, you know, New England Medical Journal. These are heart stories from your girlfriend said this and, you know, her doctor. And so that's what it is. It's harnessing all the information that you can from all the people that you meet. And this gives you knowledge. And that's why it's so important to try to find other women who have ovarian cancer. And you may not think that you have it in you, that you're not strong, but trust me, if we all can do it, 
we weren't strong in the beginning, but we are stronger now. And it's not only because we made it through, we're stronger because of the relationships that we formed with each other, I think. Right. We are definitely stronger together. Most definitely. And that's what they're saying about the almost every commercial on TV now about the COVID-19 is like, we can do this together. And that's the truth. We can do it. And you and I have done it. We're doing it, not only COVID, but also through ovarian cancer. And you reach out to people and we try to help each other whenever, you know, whenever we can. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to share as well, what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned along the way? I think the biggest is get out of your comfort zone. Believe it or not, it's going to be hard for the people that know me to listen to this, but I am an extremely shy person. I have always been a shy person and it was very difficult for me to get out of my comfort zone to go to that first meet and eat meeting. And that's what I did. I stepped out. I went into, you know, out of my comfort zone and I haven't stopped. Even, you know, when I have my grandkids with me and we're walking somewhere and I'll say, oh, well, let me go talk to this lady. I think she's going through cancer treatment. And so my grandkids have learned. They've grown up with this. And sometimes when we're out in public, they'll say, oh, Nina, this lady doesn't have any hair. Let's don't talk to her today. You know, because <laughs> because they know. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching my own grandkids through, you know, the manners that I do with trying to reach other women and everything. But it is difficult and it, it does take you out of your comfort zone. But we have to do that. We have to spread the word about ovarian cancer. We have to help other women. And that's the thing to me is, you know, being able to step out of my comfort zone and to not be afraid. Or even when you're, you are afraid and you're nervous, you just muddle your way through it. That is really important. Getting out of our comfort zone. I think speaking up for ourselves at doctor's appointments, sharing our stories, speaking up if we're accompanying somebody to their doctor's appointment and helping to advocate. Because if, if we don't do that for ourselves and other people that we come in contact with, who will? Correct. When I was in my support group meeting and I found out the first time my cancer had reoccurred, if the people in my support group, and I think you were even there that same day, if y'all hadn't said you need to get a second opinion, to me, getting a sec second opinion, I felt so guilty because I'm like, oh, you know, I really like my doctor and everything. But really, it's not about that. It's about, you know, it's your life and you need to decide what's right for you. And any good doctor is going to welcome any second opinions that you that you want and actually my doctor said the same thing to me Anytime you want a second opinion, it's not a problem. But it was, you know, I had a little bit of guilt there because I did get a second opinion and then I stayed with the second opinion. And really, it was the very best choice for me. Right. I remember one of the conversations with my oncologist when I was diagnosed with a second cancer and just very overwhelmed, a lot of information, a lot to process. And I remember asking him if he thought I should get a second opinion. And I remember him telling me he would never tell a patient not to get a second opinion. And at that moment, it wasn't that I doubted his ability because he had saved my life the first time. I just wanted to get purely just, you know, an unbiased opinion. What would what would another oncologist say? Not that I was necessarily going to switch doctors, but you just don't know what else is out there if you don't seek it. That's that's correct. Some of the women that I've met in Montana at the Can't Make a Dream camp, a lot of the women in Montana and Wyoming, they there's local women that come to the camp and there's women all over the United States and 
from the world, actually, that, that have come. But it's so amazing when I'm up there, and some of these women, there's only one doctor for like two states, one, one gynecological oncologist. And it's just amazing how all these women, and there's only one doctor, it's only his opinion. And I'm like, man, y'all need to branch out, you know, mm-hmm. go get a second opinion or whatever. But, you know, people can't drive sometimes for 15 hours to go see another doctor. And believe it or not, it's not that we're not giving medical advice to other women, but we're telling our stories about different things. So even when the women at camp, they're listening to what treatment we're having. It's kind of like getting a little mini second opinion about what could happen. And so a lot of the women listen to our stories and then they have gone and searched out getting a second opinion. You never know what's out there until you venture out. Exactly. And just listening to other other stories. I I always get like little snippets and nuggets of information, kind of keep it in my back pocket. True. (laughs) You never know when I might need it. Yeah, that's true. And Mecca, you had mentioned earlier, you know, we are currently living with the COVID-19 pandemic. Are there similarities that you see related to it with your cancer experience and how do you cope? I think there's a lot of similarities between what everyone is experiencing right now with the quarantine, with the stay at home, with, you know, you know, as, as well as I do, whenever we're in treatment, we're wearing a mask, we're always washing our hands, we're limiting people that we're around, we're not going to grocery stores during peak hours. All the things that we've done and, and we know is second nature, now the rest of the world is going through it. And so it's kind of interesting and a little humorous to sit back and to see how other people are adjusting to all of this mm-hmm. because we've done it before. And even our own immediate family, whenever we were going or when I was going through treatment, they, you know, kind of snickered about it. You know, if I had a mask or if I'm flying somewhere and I wore a mask, oh, you know, wear a mask, you know, but now everybody's got to do it. So it's kind of interesting and humorous to look back and see everyone else dealing with this and thinking, wow, you, you not dealing with it as well as I thought you would. And there is a lot of, you know, the isolation when you can't see people, it is, you know, it can be a little depressing. To me, there are a lot of similarities between what we go through as a cancer patient and everything that's happening now with the COVID-19. It's, it's like they're enduring the same thing that we did, not with cancer, but hopefully with the COVID-19, there's going to be a cure for it, you know, or a vaccination or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, you know, people have cancer, even though there's hundreds of thousands of people who have passed away from this, but there are a lot, lot of similarities in how it's, you know, affects your immune system. So you have to really be careful. My coping skills have been, I try to exercise. I love, and I use essential oils almost every day. I also love wine. I don't drink it every day, but I love it. And I do a lot of gardening, FaceTiming with my grandkids and I'm a quilter and I've been making masks and donating some and just doing a lot of sewing. I think that the ways that you cope is also similar to how just reflecting on my my own situation just through cancer treatments is just trying to find things that I enjoy you know that can be a good distraction but just overall something pleasant and enjoyable. One thing I feel like is that with everyone having to take a step back you know more people are in their home the cars you know you don't have as many cars on the road the factories are not up to 100% capacity the pollution index everything is lower and overall it's it's almost like our world is kind of getting a break Mm -hmm. you know so hopefully when we come out of this our world everything you know hopefully our economy and everything will come back but we're going to be in a better place you know that's all we can hope for is that you know we're going to be in a better place than we were with all the hustle and bustle and feel like that we were we're going too fast everyone's trying to do 10 15 things at a time and doing none none of them good yeah we were forced to slow down not by choice yes that's correct and that's the same thing with cancer we don't have a choice all of a sudden we get a phone call 
cell says, hey, you have cancer, and then bam, everything stops. That's another correlation where the, it's similar. You don't have a choice. This is what happened. And so now you do have a choice about how, when you want to go forward. Do you want to go back to the way you were, or do you want to kind of do something a little different? Mm -hmm. I think especially when we're in the moment and things are difficult and challenging, it is hard to see the positives and the good that will come out of it. But hopefully there will be some good coming out yes, of it. Yes, mm -hmm. I believe that. I do too. Becky, if you could tell us what has inspired and kept you going throughout your journey. Well, when I was originally diagnosed, I was 45. I felt like I was, you know, young. I was, you know, relatively healthy. I wasn't done living. You know, I had one grandchild. I had another grandchild that was going to be due any day from when I was diagnosed. And I wanted to fight and I wanted to live for them. I wanted to know all my grandkids, even the ones that hadn't even thought about being born. And once I started meeting my girlfriends, and I call all the women that I meet with cancer my girlfriends. I'm always saying, oh, my girlfriend this or my girlfriend that. But when I started meeting all these girlfriends with ovarian cancer, I I became stronger and smarter and started talking and spreading awareness about ovarian cancer. And I felt like I was doing something good. Like, you know, when I would do survivors teaching stu students or I would do health fairs, I felt like I was making a difference in these women. Or even if a man came by where say, hey, I'm sure you have a mother or a sister or an aunt, tell them about this, take this information home. It's been quite a journey. I feel like, and I can say this, that I am happier now in my life than I ever imagined than it could be ever and I will continue to spread as much information about ovarian cancer and to help anyone who ever needs any help until you know I'm not able to do it anymore I get inspired by helping other people by being around my grandkids and seeing them grow up and that's I have a very blessed life I'm very fortunate that my journey has been the way that it has been thank you for sharing that sure thanks so we'll wrap it up with this your story was actually captured in a book called Torch, Still Burning Brightly. It's a collection of personal stories of ovarian cancer survivors published by the Baylor Charles A. Sammons Cancer Center in Dallas. And in your story, there's a message about how cancer didn't make you a better person, but you're a much better person because of it. Would you be able to explain your message? So basically, when I wrote my story for that book, it just came to me like, I'm not a better person because I had cancer, but what cancer did is it made cancer made me stop it made me listen to other people it made me kinder it made me want to do more to help more it also opened my eyes to explore my faith a little bit more but basically it made me stop and listen to my heart it made me stop and listen to my brain to my body I was more in tune to my body and about the different changes in my mind about how I react to this or you know I didn't get I didn't fly off the handle or I didn't get stressed out about this or, or any of that, I stopped and I listened to people around me. I quit finishing people's sentences or quit overreacting. It just made me stop. And once I stopped, then I stepped out and then I just kept going. And how I react to my life, to other people's situation, I'm different because I had cancer. I'm not a better person because I had cancer. It's just cancer made me a better person. I feel like that I'm a much better person to humanity, to my family, 
to my, even to my own self, because I had cancer. Cancer didn't make me a better person, but I'm a much better person because I had it. You're going down this road and all of a sudden, bam, you have cancer. You can continue the same thing with everything that's happening with COVID. Once everything stops, you can continue down that path or you can take a different path that might be less burdensome to you and a kinder path. And that's what I feel like happened to me. There's so much truth in that. Thank you so much, Becky, for taking the time to share your story. I can personally say that when I was going through treatment and when the days were really tough, it helped me so much to know survivors like yourself. And it's so important to have positive example role models. And for me to be able to say, Becky made it through it. So, so can I. And that's one thing that's so great about our friendship support group is that we were there for each other. We do fun things. We do crafts. We go to plays, different things. We're not just a traditional little, you know, meet every Thursday night at 7.30 support group meeting. We are truly a friendship meeting. We'll meet up for coffee or lunch or, you know, it's just, just a support, a friendship support group. And that's what's so important with women with gynecological cancers that, that we have. It's important. Yeah. I've even heard it called a, a friendship group because I think there yes. are some misconceptions with being a part of a support group. Right. But it yeah. is so important and it just really means the world. But thank you so much for allowing me to capture your story and for it to benefit others. I know it, other people listening will find this very helpful. Well, you're welcome. And I appreciate everything that y'all are doing with this forum to put the stories out there for all the women out there and, and the fathers and the husbands and everyone that know women that might be going through this and that can bring this hopefully to their attention and connect them with someone who can help them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I also want to take a moment to thank our listeners. We appreciate our listeners for being part of our podcast. Please be sure to share with others. If there's a topic you would like featured on a future podcast or would like to simply give us feedback, please send an email to speakgyno at gmail.com. And as always, may we empower you, inspire you, and spark conversations. Thank you.